0: Me and my wife have ever been on. They wanted to give us a night out. They set up the childcare, they wrote a really nice card. I think there might have been flowers for Amy involved, but the best part was that it came with this gift card that was loaded to a really, really nice high end steak restaurant in our town. They had recently gone there and they really wanted Amy and I to go and to experience it, and so we were so excited. We were super excited. It had been a long time since we have been on a date, and it just felt like such a loving gesture from them. But the thing is, is that we got into a stupid fight on the way to drop the kids off. (laughs) The fight was stupid. You know it's stupid because I can't remember really what it was about. And it's weird because it's like the longer and more committed we are in our marriage and relationship, we find like smaller and smaller and less meaningful, significant things to fight about, like... Why do you always arrange the cups from back to front? You have to start from the front to the back. Why do you do that? Like, who's more tired? I'm obviously more tired than you, so it's your turn to get up and get the kids back in the bed. Don't you know what my day was like? Why do you always leave your shoes here? Things like that. Like, it took me about three seconds to come up with all those because those are real things in our marriage that came up. You know, I actually do think I remember what the fight was about. And this is a big one for us is that, Amy, I always get so frustrated because uh, Amy Amy rushes me. She gets really mad at me because I take so long to do my hair. And she's always, (laughs) anyways. So on the way to drop the kids off, we are fighting about something. I don't remember what it was, but we were frustrated at each other. You know, he put the good face on. He dropped the kids off. We're going to have so much fun. You get back to the car, and it's just tense and silent. And so we pull into the parking lot, and and we resolve it. We talk it through before we go in, and we forgive each other. We make up, and and it's all good. But we go into this restaurant, and it's just beautiful. It's just the atmosphere is wonderful. The lighting is just perfect. Like, it's the mood lighting, okay? There's, like, little candles at your table, okay? That's That's bougie enough for me. Put the tea light candle there, baby. This is awesome. The meal was incredible. Home, house-made pasta and these homemade sauces, fresh-baked bread with huge knobs of butter. Vegetables are cooked to perfection with these amazing sauces. A 35-day, dry-aged, 16-ounce steak, perfectly cooked, medium-rare. Just incredible. But you know the experience was completely overshadowed by this awkward tension of the fight that we had on the way to the restaurant. And so it made one of the most expensive dates we'd been on much, much worse than our $10.52 dates to Chipotle, where we share one bowl and are able to go out for five bucks each on a date. You live and you learn. Well the thing that we learn from that is that the destination is not always the destination is not the only goal. Who you are and what you do on the way to where you're going matters. Who you are and what you do on the way to where you're going matters. How many of you want to retire as a millionaire? Seriously question, put your hand up doing a little bit of quick math, 100% of the room, wants to finish life as a millionaire. I want you to turn to somebody right now. If you woke up tomorrow morning, opened your bank account, and you saw that a million dollars was deposited into your checking account, what's the first thing that you would do? Go ahead and turn to somebody right now and tell them. (laughs) Wonderful, wonderful. I'm assuming you all said we would buy our pastor a nice steak dinner or tithe on it, right? Yes, Woo! that's awesome. (laughs) Or no, no. Okay, everybody wants to be rich and retire. Whether you'd give that money away or move to Florida, buy a truck, we'd all love the idea of being financially set. But the reality is that many of us will do nothing to actually achieve that goal. According to Dave Ramsey, becoming a millionaire is much simpler than we think. It's not really about inheriting a vast fortune or stumbling across a secret lost treasure in the desert or even robbing a bank. The most consistent trait, according to Dave Ramsey, of millionaires is that they plan ahead. They budget and they consistently daily stick to it. Small steps lead to big results. A few weeks ago, we read these verses. I'm just going to read them again to you. Ephesians 4, this is 17 through 19. It says, with the Lord's authority, this was Paul speaking. He says, with the Lord's authority, I say, live no longer as the Gentiles do. They're hopelessly confused. Their minds are full of darkness. They wander far from the life that God gives because they've closed their minds, hardened their hearts against them. They have no sense of shame. They live for lustful pleasure and they eagerly practice every kind of impurity. The Greek words here, it means to have ceased to care. The old way of life is this ceasing to care, to give up. It's this wandering, this drifting from pleasure to pleasure. The old life is marked by filling your days with immediate, the things that could help me feel good right now, the things that are are important to me right now without planning for the future. The drifting and floating from pleasure to pleasure is the life that's far away from the life that God wants to give us. I was talking to somebody this past week, and they asked this wonderful question. So wonderful that I rewrote a lot of the sermon today based on this question. What do I need to do this year to grow spiritually? What do I need to do this year to grow spiritually? Immediately, what I wanted to say was, I want you to develop a rhythm of Sabbath in your life. I want to know what kind of reading Bible reading plan you're on. What does your prayer life look like? But as I sat and thought about it before I responded, I think becoming the person we want to be begins even more simply than that. The goal is to not just make it to heaven and to escape hell. Who you are and what you do on the way to where you're going matters. So how do I grow spiritually this year? Henry Nauman once asked Mother Teresa a very similar question. Asked her for spiritual direction, and she responded to Henry Nauman. Hen, and she said this Spend one hour each day in adoration of your Lord, and then never do anything you know is wrong. Follow this, and you'll be fine. Really simply, get close to Jesus, do what you know is right, don't do what you know is wrong. How do I get where I want to be? How, how do I become the person I want to be? How do I become this person of love and worship, of patience and kindness? How, how do I become more of a Christian? How do I exemplify Jesus? How do I display it all the time? How do I, the parent and the, the spouse and the follower and the employee and the boss, how do I do all those things? How do I grow more spiritually? How do I get to heaven? All these questions. The goal is good. Heaven is good. Being with God is good. But it's not the only thing we focus on. Who you are and what you do on the way to where you're going matters. Get close to Jesus. Do what you know is right. And don't do what you know is wrong. Sermon's over. Please go home and think about. No, I'm just kidding. We're going to go a little bit longer. (laughs) Would you please stand with me as we jump back into Ephesians and read our guiding text for today. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1. It says, imitate God, therefore, in everything you do, because you are his dear children. Live a life filled with love, following the examples of Christ. He loved us and he offered himself as a sacrifice for us, a pleasing aroma to God. Let there be no sexual immorality, impurity, or greed among you. Such sins have no place among God's people. Obscene stories, foolish talk, and coarse jokes, these are not for you. Instead, let there be thankfulness to God. You can be sure that no immoral, impure, or greedy person will inherit the kingdom of Christ and of God. For a greedy person is an idolater, worshiping the things of this world. Don't be fooled by those who try to excuse these sins. For the anger of God will fall on all who disobey him. Don't participate in the things these people do. For once you were full of darkness, but now you have the light from the Lord. So live as people of light. For this light within you produces only what is good and right and true. Carefully determine what pleases the Lord. Take no part in worthless deeds of evil and darkness. Instead, expose them. It is shameful even to talk about the things that ungodly people do in secret. But their evil intentions will be exposed when the light shines on them. For the light makes everything visible. This is why it said, Awake, O sleeper. Rise from the dead, and Christ will give you Light. We pray. Holy Spirit, would you just come right now? Would you begin to open our ears, soften our hearts? Would you be able to rem- begin to remove all the obstacles in our mind and that would separate us from you? Would you begin to work in us and speak to us this Sunday morning in February? Lord, have your way. In Jesus' name, amen. You can take a seat. Thank you. Paul's bringing up this concept that over and over, again and again comes up in this Bible, the idea of light and dark coming out of the darkness and into the light. We've been working on Ephesians since last year, since August, but pastor professor and author Eugene Peterson, he condenses Ephesians down to just two simple words: practice resurrection. The goal of our life is that resurrected life, that saved life, that new life, that thing that once was dead but will be renewed and that's coming back, that Jesus is coming and we're going to meet him in the sky. It's going to be beautiful. But Eugene Pearson puts with that word, that resurrection, that resurrected life, he puts this word practice. So it's not just something that we're going to. It's something we can implement Now. You will be resurrected and renewed, but you are resurrected and you are renewed. You are a new person right now. So let's practice it. Ephesians is all about this maturing, this growing process. Us, the children of God, children of light, having been predetermined, saved, loved, Holy Spirit, sealed and filled. How do we continue to grow and move towards the person we want to be? How do we practice our resurrection life right here and right now? How do we walk in the kingdom of God right here on earth before we're buried in it? What are we doing right now every day to become the person that we hope and desire to be? And here in chapter 4 and 5, we've been looking at this concept of the old life and the new life. And Paul puts this new spin on it, the dark life and the light of life, life of light. And he gives us these areas of common darkness. Sexually, being sexually immoral. Being impure, being greedy, being a gossip. Being foolish, being foul and having coarse language. Idolizing and being a worshiper of the world and the ways of the world instead of God. Don't do that. Don't do that. Be a child of the light. Embrace the new identity that Christ came and has given you. I think this is captured in these two these two verses, five verse two. It says, "Live a life filled with love, following the example of Christ." And then Ephesians five through seven through nine. Don't participate in the things that these people do, for once you were full of darkness, but now you have the light from the Lord. So live as people of light, for this light within you produces only what is good and right, and true. It's easy to get bogged down with all the don'ts. We hear this list of all these things that we're not supposed to be doing. We don't live like this, don't say this, don't do this, don't, don't live your life like this, and it's so easy to get captured and be thinking, uh, am I doing this? Is this far from God? Is this offensive to God? Is this acceptable? Is this, am I doing it right? How do I grow spiritually? How do I move forward? Everything, it just feels so hard. And so I'd like to simplify it today. How do I grow more spiritually this year? Get close to Jesus. Do what you know is right to do. Don't do what you know is wrong. I really believe that this is living in the light. The destination is not the only goal. Who you are and what you do on the way there to where you're going matters. I don't want to just wake up in heaven one day and live my life as far from Christ as I could. Where's the line? How how close to the line can I get and still make it where I want to go? I actually don't want to focus on the negative really at all. I would rather and prefer to just focus on this life of light, of doing what is good. What does Ephesians say? It says do what is good right and true, and letting those things guide my actions versus a list of things that are wrong. The closer you get to Jesus, the more that you rub shoulders with him, the more that you get to know his personality, the more that you begin to know what, how he ticks and how he thinks, his humor, his laugh, his, the things that excite him, the more that you begin to understand him. When you're close to somebody and you enjoy them, and you just enjoy being around them, you'll realize that you begin to take on some of their personality. Lizzie is a youth leader, and she also works with young adults, and she says, yes, the worst way that I've ever heard say, a person say it. She says it like, yas, or something like that. I can't say it right. She says it really weird, and it's messed up, and we're gonna re- she's going to repent later for it. But she's here all the time, and she's with our students, and she's with the kids, and she's with the young adults all the time. And you know how many times that it started with just her, but now I hear it from all the kids yes, 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 yes. Stop it! It's yes. Let your yes be yes. That's biblical, Lizzie. Get close to Jesus. Don't worry so much about all the negative and the things. Am I doing this right or am I doing it wrong? But the closer you get in proximity to Jesus, whatever that looks like for you, there's a whole mountain of spiritual practices, things we've given whole series to, Sabbath and prayer and community and Bible reading and fasting and all these other things. You could do any of those. Simply sitting in silence, listening to worship music, it could be anything. But the closer you get to Jesus, the more that you understand his personality, the more it will begin to rub off on you and the more that it will come out of you naturally, the more that you will begin to know what is right to do. And then do it. Don't just know what is right to do, actually do it. And you begin to do what is right and it makes it easier and you do more of that. And you stop doing what you know is wrong. I know it's incredibly simple to say that up here. I know it's incredibly difficult to live that out in life. But really friends, That's the concept, get close to Jesus, do what you know is right, don't do what you know is wrong, and you'll be okay. All the other stuff will fall into place. I don't understand my Bible, I don't know how to pray, I'm too busy for community, I can't afford to tithe, I can't show up to church regularly, fine. Get close to Jesus. Do the things you know is right to do and that you can do. And you'll begin to see your life take a shape that is good and right and true and all these other things that that Paul lines up in the darkness that he says this is not of you, this is not who you should be, you'll begin to see them fade and to be cut away and to be removed out of your life. Because even though it's easy to say, we all know that this type, this light living is hard. Don't you dare think that the world will approve of you and the decisions you're making. The world is, Actually, will try to defend itself. It'll try to tell you why all the ways that uh, living a life that's not of God is right. It's good. It's normal. It, it's not abnormal. This is how we all do it. You should do it this way. And it won't just defend itself, it will justify itself. And the world will try to put just enough truth into it to make this way of life look good that you'll join in too. The snake told Eve, He said, Did God really say you'd die? You won't die. Just take a bite, Eve. And she didn't die physically right away. But something in her spiritually did die. Beware if you seduce into the darkness. If you're a person, though, that gets close to Jesus regularly, that you purposely try to do what is right and to stay far away from wrong, the world will not be able to turn you, and it will not tolerate you. It will degrade you, and it will despise you come on, holy, you goody-two-shoes, you judgmental Christian, you bigot, you no-fun-stuck-up religious cult follower, you stupid person, get away from me, you crazy. Because the way of Christ, this Christian life makes no sense to somebody that is far from Jesus. Why would you possibly live your life like that? Why, Why would you consistently show up to this place on your week and your day off? Why would you take 10% of your money and give it to this organization every month? Why would you go downstairs and work with kids? You can barely handle your own kids. Why, why would you do that? Are you crazy? You're just stupid. And the world will try to beat you down. If it can't turn you, if it can't pull you in, it will, try to, it will distance itself and degrade you and defame you as much as it can. On the way out. There's this really common story that I want to tell you guys. It's about five monkeys and a ladder. This is a, a really, a very common story. I've heard it several times in the church world from authors and speakers and financial advisors. I've also seen it pop up when I was looking at stuff again and again and again. And businesses and CEOs are training their teams with this concept. This is an experiment that was done years ago where they brought these five monkeys into a room. In that room was nothing except for a ladder, and at the top of the ladder was food, a banana and some fruit. A monkey would start climbing up the ladder, and the scientists would douse the monkey in a cold shower. And they would do this again and again and again until all the monkeys stopped climbing the ladder. They were too scared to go near it even. And so what the scientists began to do is they would pull one of the original monkeys out and put a new monkey in. And the weird thing is, is that the new monkey would start climbing the ladder, and the old monkeys would grab it, rip it, and pull it down. They wouldn't let him climb up the ladder. And the new monkey had no idea what was going on, but they wouldn't let him extend or go up any higher. And so eventually he gave up, and he learned to fear going up the ladder too. And they did this again and again and again. Until eventually all of the original monkeys, all the monkeys that actually had a reason to fear, the ones that got doused with a shower, were all replaced with new monkeys. But all of them were still scared, but they had no idea why. This is what Satan tries to do so often, especially if you're new to faith. The idea of this story is that when you try to do something that's good, others will drag you down and it'll beat you down until you're just as broken as them. Living this life in the light means that you change how you spend your money. It means you align your sexual satisfaction with how the Bible outlines it. It means that your speech and your jokes and your language, how you talk about other people, it'll look different than how other people talk about them. At a really stupid level, a silly level, it might even look like you picking up trash. You know, somebody often will walk by a dumpster It's tipped over, trash on the ground, and many people we just walk by it the thought is that's somebody else's responsibility. I'm not gonna handle that, I'm not gonna do that. When I went to Bible college, they drilled in us. Every time you walk by a piece of garbage, you stop and you pick it up and you put it in the dumpster. we actually penalized if we walked by, and so it became this game though, it became just a way of life, is that if we walked by a piece of garbage, you pick it up and put it away. One day we're at Walmart, A group of students walked by, they saw some garbage, they picked it up, they threw it in the dumpster. I happened to not be with them, but I happened to be behind them. And I heard these people say, what? Did you just see those kids pick up that? What is going on? I think they're from the mountain. I think they're from that Bible school. But there's something weird about them. There's something different about them. There's a way that in the life, the light of life, that you do life that is just different than other people." This story is meant to show you how the world, how other people will drag you down from doing what's good. They'll stop you and impede you from doing what's good. We know what's really interesting about this story is that it's not true. Many people have used it as it's a true thing to, to spread this idea of that don't do. You, every time you try to do something, you're just going to get torn down. Fear is learn, and there's no way to help other people learn how to push past that. Some parts of the story are true, but the actual idea and the whole thing is not. The actual experiment with a much more interesting title than Five Monkeys in a Ladder called the Cultural Acquisition of a Specific Learned Response Among Recess Monkeys took place in 1967 by a researcher named G.R. Gordon. He put monkeys in a room, he put treats at one end of the room. If a monkey came and tried to take the treat, they'd blow a puff of air in his face. And then they did the same thing. They started replacing the original monkeys with new monkeys. But the difference between these two experiments, the biggest difference is that only one time in the actual experiment that took place in 1967 did another monkey in fear try to drag a new monkey away from the treat. Instead, most of the time, the original monkeys would look at the new monkey as a new monkey was going towards the tree and they look at him like, are you insane? What's wrong with you? You should be terrified. And they would cower in the corner while they're watching this new monkey go. But the majority of the outcomes that came out of that experiment was that the new monkey would go and get the treat at the end of the room and it helped the other monkeys to get over their fear of the end of the room And they began following that monkey. And so you see, this monkey began to create a way for other people to follow him. You see how different those stories are. How different, just similar truths, similar ideas, but the whole actual concept completely changes it. This is the lie, friends. It is so hard to do the right thing. You'll feel like you're on the outside. You'll feel like everybody is going one direction. You're the only person going the other direction. I'm sorry, I, I can't drink like I used to. I can't smoke like that anymore. I can't participate in the gossip and the slander like we used to slam our boss when he'd leave the room. I can't watch these types of movies anymore. I can't do these kinds of things anymore. I just can't do that stuff. And the lie that Satan will start speaking to you is that you begin to do that, you will alienate yourself from every other person. You'll never make it far in your career by doing what's right. Your father and your mother and your family that don't know Jesus will disinherit you and leave you. Your friends will abandon you. You'll be lonely. You'll be poor. You'll be broke. You'll be destitute. You'll be weird. You'll be abnormal. You'll be doing everything that nobody else is doing. You'll be the odd person out. And some of that might come to be true. But friends, in my life, what I've seen far more often is that when I do what is right, just not what I know is right, not when I take my Bible and try to splay it out for people and say, this is, this is how you're supposed to live and this is why what you're doing is wrong and why I'm so much better than you. No, none of that. When I just simply start living to the standard that I know Jesus is calling me to, when I do what is right and I don't do what is wrong and I stay close to Jesus, That has given me the biggest opportunity to minister to people. They know I have a standard. They know I'm different. They know I spend my money and my time and my entertainment and my choices and my children, how I raise them. It's different than the normal way of doing things. It has given me opportunity when life is hard for them. When the pleasure of doing this and that no longer is succeeding, that they come and say, what am I doing wrong? But even more than that, when you turn from the dark and move to the light, it's a turning moment. All of us have a, a past that's dark. All of us have a past that's just full of things that are far from God. Things that we know were wrong. Things that we knew we shouldn't do. Some things were ignorant. Some things we did purposefully. But many of us have taken that moment where we turned from it. We stopped doing that way of life and we started doing this way of light. We stopped doing what was wrong. We started doing what was right. And what happens is that that moment, your, your hardest moment, your most shameful moment, your moment that was your greatest failing, it can be a place that leads other people closer to Jesus. God actually promises, in Corinthians, he says, I'll take your weaknesses and they will be your greatest strengths. God, can't you take my ravishingly good looks and just use that? No, I'm going to take all of your imperfections and use those instead. Thanks a lot, God. But it's been true. The areas where I can get into talking to people, I just struggle, so I can talk about anger and addiction, frustration, lashing out, being selfish, all these areas of my life that were dark. And it gives me a voice to speak into somebody's life and say, I know what it's like. I I know what it's like to just live a life that's numb so you don't feel. I I know what it's like to do the things that you don't want to do, but you do them anyway because they're easier. I I know what it's like. And it actually can help and lead other people closer to Jesus. Friends, i like to invite Justin and Uh, Shelby up and they offered to share their story a a few weeks ago or a week ago I think (laughs) and God just said this is the right time and so they're going to come and share their testimony today.
1: Well good morning church we are Justin and Shelby Kelly Uh, before we jump in I just want to share a little story Uh, over the weekend I had the opportunity to go to a men's encounter And while I was there, it was placed upon me that I would share my testimony from this stage. In my mind, this stage was the stage at Men's Encounter. And I come back Wednesday, Pastor Joss texts me and goes, Hey, I want you to share your testimony on stage this weekend. I was like, Really? Really? Come on. So I was like, Fine. I will do it because you're calling me to do it. So um, as we begin, I want to share a little bit about my background. Um, I came from a broken home. My parents were divorced when I was around two years old. I have a twin brother, and we were heavily raised by my mother. Um, and as we grew up, I didn't really have any godly marriages in my life, so we were trying to do it on our own. Um, I got saved when I was in high school at uh, what they call a hell walk. It was on Halloween when um, I met some great friends, and they invited me to this walk and to learn more about Jesus and what his sacrifice was, um, and I'm very thankful for that. And then after that, I started to try and put more of my faith into practice and, and live for Jesus. And then I decided to join the military. Um, I'll tell you, the military is a really hard place to live out your faith. It's, I was told I, I left a boy and, be, and returned a man, but the man I returned as was one that was more selfish and all about myself and the pride that I had in what I could accomplish, not what Christ was doing through me. I did my best to live a Christian life in the military, again, really hard. I've had Bible studies in Afghanistan. Um, I was able to attend a church, but I still always kept going back to partying and hanging out with friends and living my own selfish life uh, to my fleshly desires. So when I got out, I felt like God was pushing me out. Um, and when I finally, against some tug and fighting, uh, decided to get out of the military, I knew that I had always wanted to meet a Christian woman. Um, I had prayed about it, Um, I even joked with a buddy of mine when I was in, I think I was 20, and I told him, I said, I'm going to be married by 24, and I'll have my first kid when I'm 26. I was joking, but God, because he's a jokester too, said, okay, and (laughs) I got married shortly before I turned 25, so I was still 24, and had my first child right after I turned 26, so that was pretty awesome. while I was in, I was involved in a pretty destructive relationship. Um, she was a Christian woman, but we were trying to do things right, but I was living in my fleshly desires and made some really bad choices because she didn't lift me up. She made me feel horrible about myself. So that pushed me away and let the devil try and tempt me at every turn, and I fell quite often. So when that relationship ended, I was working for the YMCA, and this pretty woman comes up to me and goes, hey, handsome, where you been all my life?
2: And he said, right here.
1: Well, it was probably more like, uh, right, right here? You know, guys don't expect to get hit on by a woman, but when it happens, it's great. So women, don't be afraid to take that step of faith sometimes. Uh, um, at that time, though, I had just gotten out of a two-year relationship, and I really wasn't ready to pursue another one. So I was bored really easily. and
2: He still doesn't let me ever forget that. Uh, my story is similar. My parents were divorced since I was five. And um, in high school, I went to a couple of different youth camps and youth retreats. And it would be a great experience while I was there, but I didn't have a Christian community at home. And so really the way that i learned how to get love and intention Um, and he was the first man to a by a young guy who'd even care about what i believed in or the kind of relationship that he wanted to have with me and so we started dating and we started going to church together pretty regularly but we were still living in sin and um we moved in together about a year into our relationship and everything was good and fine And um, then when I went away to U of I in the fall of 2012, that was the first time in my life that I've ever had a time to just be on my own and to be alone with the Lord. And because I wasn't interested in the party scene, I spent a lot of time at the church down there and a lot of time at worship nights and things. And um, I started to just really get this unsettledness about Justin and I were living our relationship, and we both kind of convinced ourselves that, well, God knows our heart, so what we're doing is not wrong. And so we were still regularly attending church together, and then I moved back home in um, late December of 2012 and told Justin just how I'd been feeling, and he's like, what do you mean? What do you mean? (laughs) What do you mean you're not okay with us, you know, living together and sleeping together? And I just couldn't really put my finger on it. So we got engaged January 11th of 2013. I was like, all right, I'm going to feel so much better. We're engaged now. We're committed. It's going to be great. And it wasn't because we still were choosing each other over choosing what God calls us to do every day. So we're like, okay, we're just, we're going to find a new church. We're going to get plugged in with some new community. And we started attending um, a married and engaged community group in April of 2013. And we were having a good time. We didn't, like, we weren't sure if people knew we were living together, but that was fine. And one night, we're just kind of sitting with the couple that led the group. (laughs) And the Holy Spirit just spoke through me before I even had a chance to close my mouth. And I said, so, how do you guys feel about us living together? And everyone was like, uh, including Justin.
1: Well, the, the couple that led the group, one was a 20s pastor at the church we were at. And uh, Shelby had no pre-warning of me telling me that she was going to ask this question. So she asked, and I'm like, oh, what, what, what? No. Oh, well, it's out there. Now they know. Um, And a couple weeks probably before that, there was a couple that asked me, too, because we weren't shy about it. I mean, we told people that we lived together. And one couple asked, like, do you guys live together? I'm like, yeah, we do. And he's like, oh, you heathen all right and at that moment I was like okay like yeah we are I guess but uh, we just I wasn't very convicted at that point point. Um, and so when this pastor started talking to us because now we invited his opinion he was speaking truth over us and he kept speaking about our legacy and this word legacy really hit me hard um, it was stuff that I hadn't received from anyone else else who tried to pour into us on our marriage and or on our engagement and how we were living Um, But when he said it to me, the Holy Spirit worked and really touched my heart. And so he just kept saying, what kind of legacy are you going to leave for your children? What kind of legacy are you going to leave when you try to teach them about what you're doing? Do you want to say, oh, I knew it was wrong and I kept doing it? Or I knew it was wrong and I made a conscious choice to follow God from that day forward and go where he's calling us to go? And so that really spoke to us. So um, we ended up sleeping in separate rooms. uh, they had, the pastor even offered me his basement, but I was like, I don't know you that well, so I don't want to get that comfortable with you guys yet. So, uh, so I slept on the couch, um, and we actually ended up bumping our wedding up, which our original plan was a two-year engagement. We ended up being engaged for about three weeks or so. We well, little, from that point months. on, yeah. we got
2: married in three weeks. We had sure. to call lots of family members. By we, she means
1: me. Because uh, my family's really large, so we, we took a 250 person guest list down to 30 people um, and got married in a park. and God has blessed us ever since, I would say. Um, he came through financially for us when we couldn't pay bills. Um, he's just really blessed us when we started to make that decision to follow him. And so uh, a scripture that I was you know, pushed upon me this morning was First Timothy four verse 16. Give careful attention to your spiritual life and every cherished truth you teach. For living what you preach will release salvation inside you and to all those who listen to you. And over the weekend, it was really put on me that as men, we're the spiritual leaders of our household. You can lead them correctly or you can lead them wrongly. And that decision falls on you. So I would say I would encourage you, let God lead you and be obedient to his call.
2: I just have one quick final thought that really aligns with what Pastor Josh was saying, and as I was prepping through this message, I heard him say, don't let the devil keep whispering to you that your sin has to stay in the dark, because that is a lie. You can draw your line in the sand today and come into the light, and I promise God will redeem you, and there will be forgiveness and mercy, because he did it for us.
0: When you see them later in the lobby, just grab them and tell them they did a good job. If that impacted you or spoke to you, it means so much when you come and just confirm that something you said was God-led, God-driven, and that it just confirms that you're hearing the right thing. Just thank you, Justin and Shelby, for sharing that. Friends, would you stand with me, please? I'm going to read to you another scripture that's just, it's been on my heart. So Psalms 1, it says, Oh, the joys of those who do not follow the advice of the wicked or stand around with sinners or join in with the mockers. It's so easy. It's so desirable to live that life of darkness. It just looks so good. But they delight in the law of the Lord, meditating on it day and night. They are like trees planted along the river bank, bearing fruit each season. Their leaves never wither. They prosper in all they do, but not the wicked. They're like worthless chaff scattered to the wind. They will be condemned at the time of judgment. Sinners will have no place among the godly. For the Lord watches over the path of the godly, but the path of the wicked leads to destruction. Today's message is not meant to shame you, to guilt you, to coerce you or to force you into doing something. I came up here with no intention of calling out anybody specifically. I believe this is the general call, the same call that as I was writing it, felt the conviction in my own heart. What areas, Josh, are you living in darkness? What areas are you doing what you know is wrong instead of what you know is right? And God, showed me areas. He's very faithful to do that. Oh, you're asking? Here you go. Boom. Henry Nauman once asked Mother Teresa for spiritual direction. She said, spend one hour each day in adoration of your Lord. Never do anything you know is wrong. Follow this and you'll be fine. Friends, if we could just get close to Jesus, if we could do what we know is right, if we could just have the strength from the Holy Spirit to do Don't do what we know is wrong. We'll be okay. We'll live that light, that life of light. We'll be okay.